Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Luke. We're in chapter 24 today, beginning in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were there talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at a table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us scriptures? Amen. You may now be seated. All right. Happy Easter, guys. He is risen. All right. Some of you got it. Awesome. Here we go. Um, if you haven't been with us, we've been walking through the book of Luke, um, specifically taking a look at passages that are unique to Luke, um, meaning they are uh, parts of the narrative of the Gospels that only Luke gives us, um, that Matthew or Mark or John do not give us. Um, and so today on Resurrection Sunday, uh, we're going to take a look at this road to Emmaus and, um, and see uh, what it is that, that Jesus does with these two um, sad disciples. Uh, my favorite verse in this whole thing is uh, where it says they were sad. Um, I, just, I just love how Jesus so, um, so intentionally and so carefully um, and, and, and a little bit kind of sly, you know, you can kind of see Jesus holding the laughter back a little bit and he's just kind of like, he, 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 you know, these guys don't know it's me. I mean, just, just this subtle humor of the grace of God to walk into a sad situation and try to pull us away from the sadness into opening our eyes to the glory of resurrection. I just love how Jesus does that in this story. And it, it reminds me of this time when I was young, ish. Uh, I wasn't quite old enough to be on my own, but I wasn't yet so young that my dad didn't allow me to kind of wander on my own. I was in a stadium. I believe I was at a North Stars game. I want to say I was at a North Stars game. Might have been a Gophers game. 
Um, and my dad gave me a 20, right? And, and hung out with my younger brother and sent me to go get, you know, the healthy snack that I wanted at the stadium. And like a good dad who's got his, you know, young-ish son around, he kept his eye on me. He knew where I was. He watched me, but he gave me a little bit of room. He loosened the leash, so to say, right? This is kind of one of the jobs of dads is, is to let them go a little bit. Moms are like, what? get that kid around your arm. You know, dad just kind of let me go, and I bought my stuff, and I got the change, and I had my, probably my candy and my Coke, um, pop back in Minnesota and, and, I, and I had it on my hand and I turned around and I walked up to this guy and I held the change up to him to give him the change and I looked up to his face to see my dad and I didn't see my dad I saw some stranger some guy probably in a Blackhawks jersey who made me cry and I, I thought it was my dad and it just kind of made me panic for a minute and I thought Oh my gosh, what happened to my dad? I've, I've lost my dad. Everything is, is going terrible. I'm going to, where's my dad? I'm in a huge stadium. You know, there are 17,000 people in this place watching the great, fabulous, perfect game of hockey. Like, what, where is my dad? All the while, he's just across the way with my little brother watching everything happen, safely evaluating his son, keeping eye on me, even in a state of what I thought was danger, all the while being very aware of how he needed to lead me and guide me in that time. Sure enough, in just a few moments, Dad walks up, grabs the change, takes me under his arm, and we go back and find our seats. And I forgot, obviously, forgot the whole thing, right? Didn't scar me at all. But this, this just, just kind of a moment where Jesus, Jesus is just kind of letting the, the, the rope out for these disciples. He's just, he's letting them wander down this path of just like, panic and sorrow, all the while hiding the fact that he's, he's right there. He's right there with all the answers. He's right there with all the comfort. He's right there with all the truth that they need to comfort their troubled souls. But he kind of waits a bit, right? He kind of lets them out into the deep waters for a little while to see how it is that they're going to process what has happened. Um, and so mo most of the time we read back through our passages. I'm not going to do that today because I'm going to be walking very succinctly through this story. Um, and this is the longest story that Luke gives us. So um, out of all of the, 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 the unique content to Luke that we've looked at to this point, this is the longest story, which kind of tells us he really thought this was important. He really thought every little detail of the story was important. But to catch us up to that, I'm going to read from the beginning of Luke 24. Um, this is not unique to Luke. Um, the other gospel writers tell very much this same story of what happened on the first day of the week. Um, so I'm going to read 1 through 12 and then pray, and then we'll jump in and check out these two who are walking the seven-mile road to Emmaus. So let's read this. Uh, Luke 24, starting at verse 1. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you when he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. 
and they remembered his words. And returning to the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who had told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Let's pray before we jump into the rest of the story. Father, thanks for this day. Um, we are uh, very blessed to stand in your presence, um, to sit under your word, um, to be visited um, and comforted and taught by your Holy Spirit, um, to be brought on Easter Day to a place of safety and comfort where we can um, receive your word, um, where we can receive your peace, uh, where we can hear of the good news um, that Jesus is not dead, that he did die, surely, and he was buried, yes, but he got up out of the grave. He overcame death by your power, that very same power that is available to us today as we believe, the very same power that can give resurrection to our life, the very same power that will bring about the promise of God, that is life forever in the presence of God, knowing the joy of God for all times. Lord, these are precious promises. They are true words. We can stake our entire life on them. And I pray today you would move into our hearts and, and help us to be comforted in these words, even as a story that might be familiar to us is told, that we would um, see how Jesus deals graciously with these people and then know that he also is dealing graciously with us. We love you. We love your love that overcame death. We love your grace that extends to us because of Christ. And we are comforted today in him. We pray that you would lead us to truth and help us see Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we, we spent a lot of time looking at Jesus on the cross, and we know uh, that there was a, a great marveling that happened when he finally died, and then we skipped over the part where Jesus is buried um, by a man named Joseph of Arimathea, and that Jesus then laid dead in the grave on Friday, Good Friday, that we call Good Friday, on Saturday, often called Holy Saturday, and then on this third day, Resurrection Day, Jesus rose up out of the grave. And that very same day, on that Sunday, we find the story of these two walking home. In verse 13, it says, That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. So these two are heading back to their hometown uh, of Emmaus after everything had happened. So this um, would have been kind of the, the, the return home after celebrating Sabbath, or I mean uh, Passover in Jerusalem. 
right? So these folks were close enough by where they could journey to Jerusalem. Often people would journey to Jerusalem, even from Galilee, which is where Jesus was from, and some of the other surrounding areas, because Passover was this just significant event that celebrated the Exodus, and that the people of Israel were to remember year after year after year with festivals and sacrifices and all these things. And so these people had journeyed to Jerusalem for that and had witnessed and been a part of the seeing what had happened to Jesus on uh, that Passover weekend, right? And so they witnessed this, and then on Sabbath, their Sabbath, which was Saturday, they would have rested and been prohibited by the law of Moses from walking more than like a couple of steps. Um, and so they, uh, like good little Jewish people, were faithful to not walk home on the Sabbath. That's why they were journeying home on this Sunday morning or this um, this third day. And so more than likely they were a part of the group of disciples with some of the words that they say who had experienced one of the darkest times that anybody had ever experienced. If you can imagine that Sabbath, which was supposed to be a day of celebration, um, it was supposed to be after the Passover feast and they were supposed to be uh, celebrating God's faithful deliverance. In fact, they were mourning the fact that the one they had followed the king that they thought was here to deliver Israel, uh, he was laying in a tomb, dead. On that holy Saturday, they were enduring this great sadness. And so they're talking about this, right? They're walking home to Emmaus. They're discussing this. And in verse 15, we see that Jesus himself uh, starts to come near to them, and he begins to walk with them. Verse 16 says their eyes were kept from recognizing him. In verse 17, it says, and he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. So Jesus, he starts to walk alongside of these two, maybe just trying to, to fade in with the expectation that he's a sojourner. He's somebody who also had journeyed to Jerusalem for Passover and was just simply walking home with them. And he has the audacity to ask this question, what are you guys talking about? What is going on? And again, I love this. It's one of my favorite parts of the whole story. And they stood still, looking sad. Right? I mean, this, is, this moment is meant to convey something significant. They're journeying home. They're, they're ready to get home. It's been a long, terrible weekend in Jerusalem. They want the comfort of home. They want the comfort of food. They want the comfort of their couch. They want something to bring them some sort of rest and Jesus asks them, what are you talking about? And they just stop dead in their tracks. And they're just forlorn. They're, they're absolutely overcome with sadness because of everything that had happened going on in Jerusalem. And I get the sense from this story that sometimes Jesus cloaks himself within a friend or a brother or a sister or maybe even a stranger who is genuinely asking us the question, how is it going? How is it going? Jesus hides himself in this simple uh, human greeting. How are you? What's going on, guys? Right? In layman's terms, what's up? Jesus just simply inserts himself into this conversation and genuinely asks the question, how are they doing? He does this right in the middle of the darkest time that these two people have ever experienced. He does this right in the middle of sadness and sorrow and confusion. And I think it's beautiful because Jesus actually wants to know. He knows. He knows, but he wants to know, right? He knows 
because he was there. It, it happened to him. He's not asking about events that are unknown to him. He's asking these people about what they're feeling, what's happening inside, what's going on in their minds. Why is it that you're so sad? I know why you're sad, says Jesus, but I want to know why you're sad. He actually cares to listen to the fact that they have gone through this sad and devastating situation. He wants to hear them say it. He wants to listen to them tell their sad story. And so I think for us, we've, we've got to recognize Jesus often wants to know. He knows and he wants to know. So what's going on? What's going on? Is it sickness and sadness? Is it the darkest days you've ever seen? Is it death? What, what's going on? Right? Tomorrow's a year and a half since my dad's passing. I'm still struggling to actually tell Jesus about what's going on. I've needed help my wife and my friends. I've needed their patience as I don't talk about it. I need the comfort of the Spirit when I finally do talk about it. And I actually say what's going on because he wants to know. He knows and he wants to know. So if you're there, if you're in this hardship, in this loss, in this failure, in this dark time, in this confusing time, where your expectations are devastated, where all your hopes seem lost, Jesus wants to know, and it's absolutely okay to tell him about it. In fact, he's asking. You can tell him. You can be sad, right? You can have a bad day. You can have 365 bad days. You can, as a follower of Jesus, faithfully respond to him by saying, this sucks. You can do that. Jesus wants you to know that you can do that. And maybe you need to hear this today. Maybe you're not in one of those days or those 365 days. Or maybe you're like, man, you're flying high, right? Troubles seem like a thing of the past. You're loving all the bumper stickers that say all the, the fun, quirky things about how great life is. You're like there, right? You're in all that. Your team didn't just lose in the first round. They moved on toward the team. Like, if you're in the good place, maybe you need to hear this. Jesus wants you to ask. He wants you to genuinely, carefully, calmly, and sincerely walk up to somebody with tears in their eyes, having known what's going on in their life, and say, what's going on? Hey, I want to buy you a meal. Why? Because I want to know how you are. You know? I want, I just, how are you? Not like I'm going to twist your arm and push you into a weird corner and not let you get out until I hear you cry, but just show the interest. Maybe that's how Jesus wants to teach you today. To be a part of what he's doing to insert his life into the sadness of others and to say, what's going on, right? What's going on? Because today, people still need to have the chance to tell their sad story. And it seems as though Jesus actually 
cares here. He digs in. He's wanting them to do more than just simply say it was tough. He wants to know what was tough, right? Because in verse 18, Jesus has answered, are, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened? You guys still kind of avoids, he doesn't answer. He's just kind of like, come on, you don't know? And Jesus says, what? What don't I know? He still wants to hear from them. What things? In verse 19, he says. And so finally, an exacerbated Cleopas summarizes the story. Right? In verse 19, he starts, he says, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And I think these words here in verse 21 are, are really the ones that explain to us why further up they say, it's, it says about them, they stood there sad, right? Because their hopes had been dashed. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And it's, it's, it's interesting, this hope is, is the expectation of deliverance. And this hope of deliverance is exactly what would have come to these two people if they were faithful readers of the scriptures that Jesus is about to open to them. The hope for deliverance is exactly what the scriptures would have led them to, to look toward. They would have hoped expectantly and, and eagerly for a deliverance at that time from a Roman occupation. Because they had seen in the Old Testament deliverances from Egyptian slavery. They had seen deliverances from Babylonian captivity. They had seen deliverances from oppressive armies surrounding Israel. And so, so much of the story had led them to think that we're going to get delivered from this. We're not going to be under the oppressive rule of another kingdom. So much of their life was tied up in this hope. But the thing that they miss the reason Jesus, and it's a bit of a strong word, he calls them foolish ones, but he's just enlightening them to the fact that they haven't seen the scriptures in their fullness. Their hope was slightly misplaced. They didn't understand that deliverance was going to come through suffering, that their Savior would first die and then rise. And a quick side note about resurrection, if you look at how they tell the story of resurrection, they're not telling it as if they had expected resurrection to happen. They say, that, and then these women went to the tomb and, and, and Jesus wasn't there and there was some, some vision of angels and it, it was crazy and then some other people went to the tomb and yeah, he was gone. This just, there was, there's no communication of, oh yeah, and then resurrection, man. Right, they had no idea that that was actually the way that victory was going to come. It kind of dispels one of the, the disbeliefs about the resurrection that the disciples stole the body of Jesus and just, you know, just kind of pretended there was a resurrection. They had no idea resurrection was coming. They had completely missed the fact that resurrection was a part of the plan. Right? The only way that you can see resurrection in the Old Testament is if you've seen resurrection of Christ and then look back into the Old Testament. We have that fortune. We have that opportunity to know resurrection happened so we can see in the Old Testament the little hints 
about resurrection, but it was so easy for all of them to miss it, and they had. They had missed it. They had no expectation of resurrection. They didn't plot and scheme to steal the body of Jesus. Right? They were scared to death. They would have never gone up against a guard from Rome and a, and a sealed tomb and, 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 and threatened their lives to try and steal away the body of Jesus. It wasn't in their minds. We see it in the statements here from these two as they walk along the road. But this was the key, however, to showing that God's plan was not thwarted by death. The resurrection testifies to the fact that the death of Jesus was according to the plan of God and actually accomplished the mission of God at bringing about the true kingdom of God. Not a kingdom that would physically and earthly trump over the Roman occupation, but a kingdom that would spiritually and eternally trump every kingdom that's ever existed. That Christ would reign supreme over all kings because he is the risen one. And then in probably the, the, the two key verses or the three key verses of this passage in verse 25 through 27, Jesus speaks up. He's heard their story. He's listened to their sorrow. He's had them recount for him what it is that's making them so sad, that's causing them to walk home in dismay. And he stops them and he says to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, Mike McKinley says this, we should not take this to mean that Jesus believed that every word in the Old Testament is literally about his death and resurrection, but rather that every part of the Old Testament pointed forward to or prepared God's people for the king who would come to die and rise again for his people. And so Jesus takes them on a, on a journey through the Old Testament scriptures, beginning with Moses and, and all the prophets. He walks them through by memory and, and, and helps them to see what it is that the Old Testament had talked about and how he was the fulfillment of all of these things. Beginning with Moses, this was a man who was rejected by his own people, right? And then he, he fled to waste away in obscurity, but he was handpicked by God to be the deliverer of Israel. He was the one who would deliver them from the mighty and ruthless Pharaoh through the signs that God did among them. And he could have said any number of things about how Moses pointed forward to a rejected Messiah who saved his people from captivity and delivered them through the laying down of his own life. He may have taken them to the book of Judges to refresh their, refresh their memory on the story of Gideon, to show them that God doesn't win battles with sheer military numbers, with might and with skill, but by power thrown, uh, shown through vulnerability. He wins battles in ways that confound worldly wisdom. Or maybe he talked about David, who would, who would become the greatest of Israel's kings. But before he became that great king, he was rejected and pursued by a madman, left to flee into caves and hang out with rejects. That's where David went first before he went to the throne. He might have even recited the words from Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
Maybe they were told these stories so that they could understand that sometimes God's servants are taken right to the edge of death itself so that they would know nothing can separate them from the love of God. Or maybe he recalled the book of Daniel to tell again the stories of Daniel and the stories of Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, so that these disciples would grasp the fact that God didn't deliver them from being thrown into the fire or from being thrown into the lion's den, but in fact that he saved them right there in the midst of the fire, that he saved them right there in the midst of the lion's den, that that's where God's salvation was made poignant, where that's the spot that glory was seen in the darkest of times. He could have even talked about Isaiah, the prophet who was told, nobody is going to listen to you. No one. Everything you say will be true. You'll be a true prophet because everything you prophesy will come to pass, but no one will listen to you. Not the way that we would like things to go. Or maybe it was the story of Jeremiah, the prophet who was nicknamed the weeping one. He was taken against his will to Egypt just as Jerusalem was being sacked and overtaken by Babylon. Talk about a bad day, right? It could have been Samson's story or maybe Samuel's or maybe the story of Esther and Mordecai or Caleb and Joshua or Ezekiel sitting along a canal as a captive in Babylon. The entirety of the Old Testament accounts point again and again at what Jesus says in verse 26, first suffering, then glory, glory through suffering. Is it not true that the Christ had to suffer? Jesus showed them that the thrust behind all of Scripture, all of these stories, that the entire historical narrative of God moving through the ages with his people, that often his people were despised, that they were regularly counted out, that at times it even seemed like God wasn't with them at all. And then again and again, when it seemed that all hope was lost, when it looked like time was up and no one was expecting anything good to ever happen again, it was then that the glory of God shined the brightest. It was in the moments when it seemed he was furthest, that he was closest, and he was working to unveil his power and his plan. It was the same story shown a million different ways. God was not held down by worldly power. He could not be defeated by enemies. He would not be overcome by evil. Even death itself would not stop the love of God. We see the New Testament authors pick up on this and explain it in excruciating detail, in just perfect picture, perfect detail. Suffering first, then glory. Isn't this the way it had to happen? And all of these stories... All of these sufferings, all of these trials, all of these defeats, all of this difficulty pointed forward to the one who would suffer finally once totally and utterly for the forsaking of all that happened to everything else, everyone else, to bring them completely to glory. It was all left incomplete until the moment that that stone was rolled away. It was all left unfinished until Jesus walked away from death. It was all pointing to this moment 
where by the power of God, Jesus, the incarnate son, would walk away from death, just like Moses out of the Red Sea, like Gideon from the hands of the Midians, like David from the threat of Saul, like Daniel out of the den of lions. Jesus walked out of the grave in victory. All of these stories point us again and again toward Jesus, the suffering servant, the one who would be despised and rejected, who would not only look like he was abandoned by God, but actually be abandoned by God. Because at that moment, all the sin of the world was placed on his shoulders. And the wrath of God, instead of falling on any other sinner, fell on Jesus, the perfect one. In that moment, he was rejected. He was scorned utterly. But it was the plan of God. Just like had happened so many times before when it looked like death was the winner, in fact, death was the loser. God vindicated Jesus by raising him from the dead. Again, verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? First, suffering, then glory. This is the biblical pattern. Jesus walked them through the whole Old Testament. I was just talking to Nathan beforehand. Can you imagine Jesus walking you through the whole Old Testament? Just showing you the glory of the scriptures, showing you what they're pointing to, showing, them, showing you again and again how God's story goes so totally different than the way the world thinks the story should go. And it happens still with Jesus too. It didn't go the way the world thought it would go. And so Jesus is saying, do you not see how God operates? Do you not see the way of the kingdom of heaven? Do you not see that there is an upside down nature to the way that God works? He's not working according to the pattern of this world. He's not seeking to win through displays of power and thwarting over others. He is gloriously doing something completely different. His manner is victory through sacrifice. His power is perfected in weakness. His path is narrow. His love is displayed in laying down his life, not taking up a defense. His glory road is the suffering of Calvary, the true way to live unto God is through death to this world, Jesus is saying. And again, the New Testament writers picked up so beautifully on this reality. In Hebrews 1, we see this said about Jesus. It says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is, that is Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the, power of, by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is the final spoken word of God. Jesus is the very embodiment of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of God's nature, and he suffered to reveal the true path to glory. His suffering made way for our sins to be washed away. And Isaiah, right in step with all of the other prophets and all of the other writers of the Old Testament, he says this in Isaiah 53.10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring 
He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It is the will of the Lord that Jesus followed this pattern of all of the scripture and died. It was the will of the Lord that prospered in his hand, which is why he rose from the grave, triumphant over death, having proved that his death was not in vain and that indeed the declaration of God was true. Forgiveness of sins. The guilty ones set free because of the upside-down nature of the true king of the universe, the one who came not in power but in service, the one who came not to kill but to die. And then through that servant, through that servant path and that death, he was the one who would reign. The point of this entire study of the scriptures that Jesus brought them through was to comfort their troubled hearts by saying this, in the end, as you look back on the way God has always operated, isn't this the way it had to happen? Guys, don't be so surprised. It had to go this way. It's always gone this way. It's never according to the world's plans. It's always according to my upside-down kingdom where death is turned into life. This is the way it had to happen. This is how sin had to be paid for. This is how true spiritual life had to come about. Jesus comforts their hearts and says, guys, you missed it. You missed it. Let me help you to see it. And the story continues. They drew near to the village where they were going. We have no idea how long they talked. We don't know if they pulled up a rock, sat down and chilled for a bit. We don't know. But eventually they got there, still not having seen that it was Jesus. And he kind of pulls another one on him. He acts like he's going to go on farther. In verse 29, they urged him strongly. Right after all of this conversation, there's something going on. And they're saying, come on, stay with us. It's, it's kind of getting late. You should, you should stay with us. And so he went in, and they sat down to eat. In verse 30, he took bread and blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. And it's not a coincidence that at the breaking of bread, their eyes were opened. They saw Jesus finally for who he was, Right? At the breaking of bread, just like the communion table, just like the cross and the broken body of Jesus, their eyes were opened. Oh my goodness, it's true. The Savior must suffer. This is who Jesus really is. It's victory through death, not around death, but through it. That's what their eyes were opened to. They recognize him, and then poof, Jesus vanishes, which is pretty crazy. Tim Mackey says this, and I love it. He says, Luke is telling this story to make a powerful point about following Jesus. When Jesus' disciples impose their agenda and their view of reality on Jesus, he remains invisible and unknown to them. It's only when we submit ourselves to the upside-down kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom that's epitomized in his broken body on the cross, offered in self-giving love, it's only then that we see and know the real Jesus. As long as we want a Jesus who doesn't suffer, as long as we want a Jesus who didn't die, as long as we want a king who never had weakness, then we're going to miss the real Jesus. The real Jesus submitted himself even unto death. It's when we recognize we give up on our hopes for some kind of any 
of, of an earthly kingdom. It's when we let go of the idea that here in this life, Jesus, you're supposed to be king. It's when we finally let that go and realize that here in this life, he'll be betrayed, that we'll often be betrayed, that often death will come, but not eternally. That the true Jesus is seen when we recognize that the sufferings of this world are not the final word. The final word is resurrection. And in this moment, they turn to each other and they say one of my favorite lines out of all of disciples' favorite lines. Did our hearts not burn within us when he talked to us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures? They look at each other and say, no wonder! It was him all along. No wonder we were just like, couldn't get enough of this. No wonder everything that he said was resonating deep in our souls. No wonder our sadness was beginning to deteriorate and our hearts were starting to gain some joy. No wonder we couldn't take our eyes off of this man. That we couldn't close our ears to this man. It was the living truth of God. It was Jesus himself showing us what is the true way of his son. And it's when we see this path of suffering, it's when we turn the pages of scriptures again and again and we see over and over that victory doesn't come by might nor by power, but that it comes in a subversive way, in an upside-down way. It's then that our hearts resonate so much with what the scriptures are saying. Listen, there's times you can read this thing and you can see the duties in there, and I tell you that's nothing but death to your heart. When you read the law and you think of all the things you should do, and you think of all the things you're not doing that you should do, and you think of all the failures that you've done because you didn't do the things you should do, that is death. That is not the way to read the scriptures. The way to read the scriptures is to see a faithful God to an unfaithful people to see the strong victory of a perfect king to those who are weak and failing, to see that even in the moments where they thought they were alone, where they thought that God had left them, where they thought they were in the cave, where they thought that they were left to die, that in those moments God was close and he was near and he was working something more than they could ever imagine. Right? It's the second half of Hebrews 11. Some of them were cut in half. Some of them were left to wander around deserts and clothes made of animal hides. Some of them were sawn asunder. Some of them were were abandoned. Some of them were burned at the stake. And all of them didn't see the great picture of what God was truly doing. Because that picture wouldn't come true until Jesus got out of the grave. And the victory was given to lost sons and daughters because of his death and his resurrection. I urge you to seek the burning heart of Jesus in the scriptures. All of the scriptures are pointing to Jesus. Again and again, find Jesus in the pages. Look to scripture to find where Jesus is winning through losing, where God's people are finding victory even though it looks like utter defeat, where you can look at the exile. We've talked about this recently, the most devastating moment that Israel had ever seen. The temple was burned down. The ark was stolen, never to be seen again, ever. All of the tools, all of the stuff the priests used for sacrifice were grabbed and brought all all the way over to Babylon. In those moments, they thought it was over. They thought there was no hope left. And those moments pointed to the very same thing that Jesus is talking about. 
I have not abandoned you in the darkest of times. Tell me about it, child. Weep before me, child. I want to know how this feels to you, and then I want to lead you to see that death does not have the final word. It doesn't end in a tomb. It ends in glory. Jesus invites us into this story of glory. And he does so by asking us about our stories of disappointment in the world. Don't think you have to hide from Jesus that you're struggling. Don't think that you have to hide from your brothers and sisters that it's hard to believe. Don't think that you have to, to, to cloak your Christianity under some sort of perfect ideal understanding of the Bible and walking in utter bliss. Be released from all that foolishness. Jesus is not here to condemn your un, your under, your ununderstanding heart. He's not here to condemn you for not getting it. He's not here to condemn you for being sad on Resurrection Sunday, right? Jesus was out of the grave, and they were sad on the same day. It happens. You don't have to hide from the sadness just because you have a resurrected Savior. You can actually walk into it and feel the comfort of Jesus right in the middle of that sadness as he leads your heart to understand this doesn't have the final word. Whatever it is, job loss doesn't have the final word. Cancer doesn't have the final word. Relational brokenness doesn't have the final word. Your gross sin doesn't have the final word. It doesn't. That's what resurrection tells us. Death is buried, finally. Resurrection life is ours through Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says this beautifully. And we'll close with this. Since we have then the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believe, and so I spoke. We also believe, and we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer selves is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This light, momentary affliction. That's not Paul being dismissive. The man was beat next door to death a couple times, shipwrecked. I mean, bad life. And he called it light, momentary affliction. Light and momentary affliction. So if it's darkness today, 
right? If it's heavy today, if we're walking home with sadness, feeling defeated, just wanting to collapse on the floor, the scriptures tell us that's light and it's momentary compared to the glory of God to be revealed. Suffering first, then glory. Suffering first, then glory. So if it feels like you're losing, if it feels like Holy Saturday, or everything's in the grave, where it's dark and sad, and there's no moments to celebrate, and maybe it feels like that for a while, that is not a declaration of where God is or what he's doing. God is still with you, and he is still working his plan, just as he did with Jesus. And we know one day, the resurrection body of Jesus, the, the, the body that vanished, poof, at the table. The body that just walked into another room with the disciples to talk about that next week. That glorified resurrection body is a precursor of what we'll enjoy forever. Glorified resurrection bodies. And when we're standing in those bodies, when we're finally and totally beholding Jesus for everything that he is, when we can actually look at the scriptures, not with slow, dull hearts, <laughs> but with hearts aflame and alive to God. At that moment, when we can do those things after we've been resurrected by God, we'll look back at all this life and say, light, momentary, compared to this glory. That's the promise of resurrection, right? It's not a promise of great lives now. lives now. It's a promise, no matter what life we have now, of a great life to come. Right? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for showing us the scriptures. And God, we are still often slow to believe. We are still often dull in our hearts. Often we still struggle to understand what it is that you've done and what it is that you're doing now. And that's okay. Thank you, Jesus, for giving us words like they stood still sad. Thank you for those words. They comfort our hearts because sometimes we're just standing here sad. We have no hope left. We feel like the world has come to an end. We feel like there's nowhere to go. We just want to escape it all. And you understand that. You don't condemn us. You don't hold your perfection over our head. No, in fact, your perfection you gave up for us. You gave it to us so that in our moments of despair we could see that we're still loved by God. That you're still drawing close. That you want to hear. That you, you want to know. And that your comfort is real because this is not the final word. Whatever it is we're standing in today, it's not the final word. Resurrection is. Your grace given to us forever because of Jesus. That's the final word. And God, some of us are not in a place where we need to be comforted by these words, but rather we need to be pushed out as comforters by these words. So Jesus, would you jump into us through the Holy Spirit and then work through us to comfort others when they face sorrow? That we would actually be able to practice the mourning when other people mourn. That we would be able to enter into the sufferings of others to help them see that yes, Jesus suffered, but then yes, there was glory. And one day for all of us, there will be glory too. 
We thank you for resurrection. It is a power that the world has never seen before you. It is a power that is so triumphant. It is glorious. And we can't even see it for all of its fullness, but one day we will. And God, we eagerly expect and with great hope long for the day when at last we'll be able to say with Paul that this life was light and momentary compared to the glory that you'll give us all because of Jesus. He came, he lived, he died, he was buried, and he rose again. Praise his name. Praise the name of Jesus. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.